discovering a lot of fun trails and stuff. Apparently one just like next to our townhome. Uh, if we take a special turn and continue on it, we could go all the way to the mountains. Like it's the Dimple Dell. Or yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever. I've been to Dimple yeah. Dell. It's a great, great place. I think Sandy also links up with, there's a trail that links up with the Murdoch Trail. They just connected it this last year. Um, and the Murdoch Trail goes all the way <clears throat> to the point, I mean, to uh, Orem. So there's now a trail that goes from Draper, I want to say, Sandy, maybe Draper, all the way to Orem, which is kind of fun. Welcome to Bristlecone Fireside's Summer Sessions, the same great podcast about God, the earth, the universe, and everything, but with more of those good times summer vibes. Since our last episode, I've eaten a full box of Otter Pops, walked to the 7-Eleven to get slippery with my friends like three times, and the only clothes I wear anymore are swim trunks. So the summer sessions are off to a great start. Uh, so today we have a, another special uh, episode of the, our summer sessions. We have some of the essayists from the book, The uh, Blossom is a Cliff Rose by the Tory House Press, and we have Reb, Sarah, and Michael with us. Um, and, uh, if you guys, if you three could, uh, give us a little bit of intro to who you are and what brought you to this, 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 uh, conversation, that would be great. And we'll, we'll start with, we'll start with Reb. Um, yeah, I am Reb. I live in Sandy. Um, I work as a copywriter here and, um, I am here because of Karen, basically Karen, um, Anderson. I've known her since 2016, 2017. She was my professor for creative nonfiction. She kind of introduced me to like so many amazing professors at UVU, introduced me to new ways of writing because um, I never really imagined that I would have things about my life um, uh, that would be interesting to write about. Um, and so, yeah, she really opened that up for me. And I'm here because I got the email, uh, a call for submissions for a project that she and Danielle were working on. And I got really excited. Excellent. Very cool. Sarah? Hi, I'm Sarah Newcomb. I am Cynthian from the First Nations. And I actually um, have gotten to know Karen recently, but she reached out to me because I run a blog called Lamanite Truth. And kind of speak out on Lamanite issues and I've spoken at conferences and different things and so she'd been told about me and reached out and asked if I'd submit and yeah I was really excited to be a part of it and kind of express you know that passion in a different way than I have usually I'm focused on like the historical issues and even the current teachings but this kind of let me step outside of that and write about a different part of my journey, which was like finding my way back to my Cincinnati heritage. So, yeah. Very cool. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, I'm Michael McLean. Uh, I, I grew up uh, in Salt Lake City and spent the vast majority of my life there before making a move around the world to New Zealand about two, almost two years ago now. Um, but I, uh, my background is as a poet and creative writer, uh, and that's how I got to know Danielle a bit was through various literary circles in the state of Utah. Um, and I, I also um, ran literary programming for Utah Humanities for um, about seven and a half, eight years, and uh, got to know Karen and a lot of the other faculty at, at um, uh, Utah Valley University. And, and so I got to know both of them. And at one point um, in this process, they had, had contacted me and just asked me to pitch a couple of ideas to them um, for uh, an essay in the book. Um, I'd love to start us off with uh, a question. Um, I know all of you kind of introduced how you got involved with the project and, um, you know, your, your various interactions with Karen or um, Danielle, but I'm really curious what interested you most about this particular project um, and if you could speak to, you know, why you wanted to participate, if there was something in particular that, that piqued your interest um, in this specific project. I'll go. I've, 
yeah, for me, it was, uh, well, one, I was really impressed with Karen. And as I talked with her, like, it felt like a really cool project. But I was born in Utah. I was born in Bountiful and have that, you know, Mormon heritage. But then it was so much of that connection to land was a huge part of my journey back to my own people in Alaska. And so just that connection to land, I thought was really kind of inspiring. And, and I loved that she was, that the book, that the project that her and Danielle had going was a combination, you know, like all across the spectrum. It wasn't ex-Mormon. It wasn't Mormon. It wasn't, you know, it was just, just this, yeah, broader group of people. And it, it just seems, yeah, just seemed like a great project. And that connection to land was something that I experienced quite a bit through the last few years of reconnecting. So yeah, that was it for me. I'd like to add to what Sarah's saying about um, it being, you know, on the spectrum that, 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 that drew me to it as well. Um, I wanted to, a lot of my immediate family hasn't read um, my work uh, and I haven't actively shared it with them um, for a lot of reasons. And I think that, especially my creative nonfiction work. Um, and so this seemed like a really gentle access point where I could introduce them to a lot of voices um, with mine included that can kind of give maybe like, like a soft landing to a lot of the things that I want to say and wanted to say. And so that's what drew me to it as well. And as far as like the connection to the land, when I got the, the call for submissions, um, I was, I had just moved back from California and uh, experienced an earthquake there uh, in Ridgecrest, California. And, and so I was very much <laughs> interested in the land and, and learning more about that experience, which was like, uh, it was like a, a big one. Like it was significant. It, it caused a lot of damage. Um, we were like within 15 miles from the epicenter. And, and so it just seemed like, and I had also had the experience with caring to go to a writing retreat in Capitol Reef, which was how I first heard about Tory House Press. I and love Capitol Reef. Oh my gosh. Like it's, <laughs> I've been wanting to go back ever since. And that, that really opened up something for me. Not only was it like my second class with Karen learning more about creative nonfiction, nonfiction and how it like just improving my, my voice. And um, so, yeah, the land just made a lot of impression. Like it just made a really great impression. And I jumped on the chance to, to access that and write more about it. Um, I kind of both of the ideas that I pitched to, to Karen and, and Danielle um, were tied to kind of long on, ongoing projects that I'm uh, involved with, uh, both of which tie very deeply into Mormon history. Um, the, the first of them was uh, for a good chunk of the last decade, I've been um, touring and writing about and, and researching um, the, the history of the, the nuclear West, basically, um, atomic testing and atomic industry um, in the Western US. Uh, and uh, that's, it's inextricable, you know, that is inextricable from Mormon history at this point. Um, they, uh, indigenous peoples and, and Mormons, Mormon settlers uh, made up the bulk of the downwinder populations um, that were exposed in the 1950s and 60s and um so that ended up being the the, the story that we, we we went with for, for my contribution to the book um but i also um have uh, spent a, a few years um, kind of tracing the history of uh, warm springs which is the the hot springs complex north of salt lake city um which was uh, not only a um you know, sacred ground for at least three different tribes in utah 
um, but also became a place of, of kind of rebaptism when people would enter the um, Salt Lake Valley. And um, it was, it's a place that has had a really complex recreational, religious and industrial history and environmental history. Um, and I've been trying to kind of trace that complexity over the years. So it's uh, my, my connection to the land is um, unfortunately uh, uh, more from the point of view of toxicity in a lot of ways, but um, yeah, that's uh, uh, still a very deep connection. I mean, it's, it's the, it's the place where I grew up. Um, so uh, there's, there's sacrifices to be made for, for growing up there. Yeah. I, uh, I, what I hear in, uh, in some of your responses is that part of the draw of this entire project was that, uh, it pulled from such a diverse community that there are, there's a huge spectrum of relationality to, you know, Mormonism or the church. Right. Um, and, uh, it's funny that I, so this last weekend I was at the Mormon history association conference. Um, and, uh, I presented a, I was, I chaired a session there, um, and what I, what struck me was that it's some of the, almost the same energy that's in this book was at the conference where, um, there were, there were, there was, you know, general authorities there, but there were also ex Mormons there or Mormon adjacent people presenting that all just had a passion for this subject. Um, but they're, uh, but they were all there and they didn't care so much about what your affiliation was with the actual institution. Um, and so that really struck me about both the book and about my, my experience this last weekend. But I think that was uh, part of the exciting thing to, that we were able to you know pull people in and have conversation um, with some of the, the different authors in the book was that we would be pulling from quite the diverse uh, spectrum of Mormon affiliation. As I was reading through uh, each of your pieces, I noticed that there's a lot of vulnerability in each of your essays, uh, whether it was uh, telling stories from your own life and family or that you were personally impacted by historical offense. Can you talk a little bit about your decisions to show up so personally in this anthology? Uh, I don't know any other way to write creative nonfiction. <laughs> like I, um, my first class with Karen, I'd written a piece that it was my first publication ever following her, her edits and that class and the prompt to write it. Um, with Peculiar, uh, it's a queer lit journal out of Utah. And um, I, she guinea pigged me with that, with that piece uh, to have everyone workshop it first. Um, Cause I'd admitted that in one like cry, fresh, cry fest sprint, I'd written the first draft, I'm like I got it done. So she's like, okay, well, I guess that's you volunteering. So I mean, some, one of the comments was, this was like reading like, a journal entry or like a therapy session. And I was just like, jokes on you. I read it to my therapist. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's, yeah. I don't know any other way to write creative nonfiction. Uh, I listened to the episode that you did with Karen and, and Danielle last week. And, and it, I think it was Karen that mentions there's, there were a few people who they actually had to come back to and say, this has gotten a lot more personal than we expected it to with most of these pieces. Um, can you add that dimension to your, yeah, I was one of those. <laughs> um, uh, because initially they had, we had kind of pitched this as a much more scholarly piece to kind of bounce off of the poetry and the other creative work that was in the book, uh, which is actually more outside my comfort zone. Cause I'm, I'm a poet, right? you know, by, by training, by, by love, by background. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I went with this very kind of scholarly route on this piece and, and Karen came back and said, no, 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 scratch that. We, we need more of this other stuff. And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> like this is much more in my, my wheelhouse. So um, yeah, it was just a, trying to figure out how to get that balance was much harder. <laughs> so, uh, but this is, it, it's such a personal topic. It's so very literally embodied, um, my particular topic with the atomic testing in, in family and friends, in people all around me in, in Utah growing up. Um, you know, I, I, I talk about that. The first downwinder I encounter openly is my, my sixth grade teacher and, that having just an enormous impact on me. So like, this is a very personal, very vulnerable space. And it was actually a relief for Karen to come back and say, yeah, please more of that. So 
Yeah, and I think with um, with mine, it just it had to be kind of that vulnerable, emotional, simply because of what was inspiring my piece and starting off with you know where my grandmother walked and kind of returning to my people. Um, just when you relive certain memories, how intense and emotional, how real they can feel sometimes. Just just those handful. There's not a lot in my life that that feel that way, but this one experience with my grandma um, that I wrote about definitely started that piece off more intense than I'd even planned. You know, you go into writing, you don't know what's going to happen. You just have no idea. Um, and when it's when it's really great, it's almost like you don't have control. You know, it just it's like the piece tells you what it needs to be the story that needs to come out. And yeah, the, the memory that I tapped into definitely set the tone for me and there's no turning back once I started. Thank That's you. kind of how writing is. Yeah, it is kind of how writing is that, you know, I definitely have experienced that where it's, uh, something that just kind of flows through me rather than it feels like I'm discovering something rather than like having, to, I mean, I granted I've done the other kind of writing where it's like, I'm, I'm stitching this together out of my own, like my own pain, but like the other kind of writing where it just kind of flows out of you is just, it's, it feels so much better to write that way. <laughs> I also think it's interesting. I mean, we talked a little bit about, or you guys talked a little bit about that vulnerability, but I think something unique about this project is, um, you know, like you said, Michael, that it invites that, um, that Karen came back to you and said, no, we need more of this. Um, but like, what a unique experience to be able to participate in something that's not only allowing you to kind of speak uh, to something that may have caused pain in the past or, or brings up um, maybe some kind of unresolved feelings, but also invites that vulnerability to talk about them in a pretty safe space. Um, I don't know, I, th I feel like that's something I connected so well with in each of your pieces um, were these little portions of, of kind of vulnerability, um, both in regards to, you know, your personal history, but also um, your experience with the church or, um, you know, the very interconnectedness with each of those, those layers with the, the land as well. Um, and so I found it to be something that I think probably with the diversity of voices that were included um, can be very, um, you know, people can empathize with it very well and it will, it will invite a wider audience because of that. Um, so I just wanted to thank you for including those, those more vulnerable kind of um, stories. Yeah, I hope so too. I hope it does, you know, that's always the hope when you put something out there, right? So. A uh, question that I wanted to ask um, is, so this book is about uh, Blossoms, the Cliff Rose, you know, it's kind of about the, the Mormon legacies and the beckoning wild, right? And I know that among you three, that Michael, you're in New Zealand. Uh, Sarah, I want to, what Alaska was one of your homelands, right? And then like, so it, we're, we're, we're spread pretty far. And so I wanted to ask like, what was, what was an early moment in your life where you realized, oh, the land like means something to me or I, cause I know there, there's a lot of people who, who the environment is not something that they think about all the time. Right. So is there a, an early moment in your life where you realized, oh, this, my relationship with my landscape, with my homeland is really important to me and that I need to be able to give voice to that. Yeah. I, uh, I grew up all over the country. So I was born in Bountiful, Utah, but I've lived in 19 states now. Wow. And, you know, my parents, my mom's from Alaska. My dad was an upstate New Yorker. They met at BYU, classic, you know, just started having kids. But we moved a lot. And um, every few years, you know, when I have an opportunity, I'd go home to Alaska, to the reservation, and we'd step off the plane. And it would just be that beautiful smell. Like, I could just feel myself being home. And we'd take the boat from... Um, catch a can over to a small island where the reservation is in Metlakhetla. And there's just, there's nothing like it. And so moving all over throughout my life, having that home base, just, I don't know, it's very powerful how you connect to the land. And 
oh, my people have been there forever. And so like knowing that they've just their connection to the land, you kind of inherit some of that, that connection, that passion. So for me, it was, it was very much just that constant childhood, you know, we'd be living, I, I lived so many different places and no place was like Alaska and just getting off the plane and being there with family that I missed or hadn't seen for a long time. It was very powerful for me. And yeah, I know most of the book is actually like, I listened to the podcast too. And <laughs> most of the book is about being in the desert and being in Utah. And I remember talking to Karen being like, well, my connections to Alaska, <laughs> you know, I, I was born in Utah, but I also see that as Diné land and just some of the other tribes that live there. I mean, it was, there's numerous tribes that call that their homeland. And so for me, I was like, well, I feel more comfortable, you know, talking about where my connection is and kind of my letting go of where I was and going back to where I've come from. So is this an open question for you? Yeah, yeah, this is an open question for anyone. <laughs> um, I, I thought of a story uh, when I went to Tucson, Arizona for the first time, uh, I was warned and we went on a hike. I was warned not to leave the trail. And uh, because the jumping cactus would get me. And, uh, and if I did leave the trail or if I encountered a jumping cactus and it got on me, not to take it off with my hand and to use a stick. So of course I left the trail. Of course I got a jumping cactus segment on my thigh or on my calf. And of course I used my hand cause I was too embarrassed <laughs> and I was too flustered. I'm like, I did what they told me not to do. And it was so painful. My fingers had barbs in them for like a month. And I remember just like feeling like a, a weird anger at the land and you know, how unforgiving the train was. I'm like, I want a field I can run in. Like, I want to like be able to roll around. And it, but Arizona, like in that specific terrain, it doesn't want you there. Everything there wants to injure you if you stray and so yeah, it was just a moment of me wrapping my head around a land that doesn't want you or that that is like dangerous, right? Um, and so I guess that kind of connected me. It that that moment was like an awareness of wilderness or an awareness of somewhere that you had to respect the you had to respect it, or you were gonna get bitten and that was going to be a lasting lesson for you and I feel like uh another lesson out of that is just to realize you know that we are we are guests as much as anything and uh and it kind of removed that instinct to dominate maybe or like to dominate the space that I'm in or the land that I'm in and and emphasize the requirement to adapt. And, and so that it was just a new, an experience that taught me a new respect. Um, I grew up in the foothills of the Wasatch and um, the, the row of houses that my childhood home sat in, basically behind them, there was nothing until there was a Monroe gravel pit um, that was kind of disguised by trees and fields between our house and it, and then nothing until the, the Wasatch. Um, it's, it was near uh, Big Cottonwood Canyon. And, um, you know, we, we would set up just high enough that from our, the front porch of our house, I could see uh, the, the Kennecott Copper Mine off to the, the southwest and the Great Salt Lake off to the northwest. And, um, you know, I, the fields behind my house were full of deer and skunk and snakes. And I, it was a great place for a kid to grow up. The, the, the gravel pit didn't really register in my mind until I was a little bit older and realized that, um, you know, I, I, all around me, there's this kind of confluence of, of um, extraction and the natural world and the kind of oversized role of humans in it. And, um, you know, that that was a lesson early on, especially as I started venturing farther and farther away from the house and discovered the gravel pits. And I mean, there were, 
you know, kids in the neighborhood died up there. Um, there were accidents and things and there was, you know, it was, um, the, yeah, it, it was just this kind of, that's something that always stuck with me from very early on was um, that there was um, both this incredible beauty and this very distinct danger in that, that, that meeting place of those two things. kind of curious um just you know in leading from your connection to the land um all of your different essays and um and pieces can speak to your connection with your mormon experience as well um and how did you find that connection or what led you to a connection uh between you know your experience as um or with an affiliation to the to the mormon church but also um, the land itself and, and how those two intersected. Um, and I mean, none of you have to speak to that or all who can, but I, I am curious about the connection between the two and how that was formed. Um, from my experience, I, I was born and raised in the church and I was raised being told I was a Lamanite. And so I always saw the world through that view. And then about four years ago, um, three years of research came to an end and I found myself, you know, transitioning out of the church and just um, taking a different path. And I was, it was within a month, that first month that after I had left the church that I, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not Lamanite. It wasn't a part of my weaving. It wasn't a part of my, of any of the challenges that I found on why I left. But I, it was like, how could I have not seen that? How could I have not, um, even in my transitioning and all my research, it's like I almost avoided it. You know, like, how could I have not seen that? It just blows me away. But um, really quickly after that, like I just start pacing and I was just moving all the time. And I mentioned this a little bit in my essay. And then I, you know, my, I, I had really high anxiety at first after leaving, you know, there's so much change and I lived, you know, it was, I was 38 at the time. So I lived those first 38 years in this one, not just in this box of friendship and family and, you know, all my beliefs. And so I started yeah, having really high anxiety afterwards, just kind of coming to terms with things and then realizing that being told not to do certain things or being told to stay out of the sun or being told, you know, all these things that came with being Lamanite, I just, it just kind of all crashed and I couldn't like sit still. I couldn't process it. And so I, I love to run and it'd been years since I'd been running and, you know, four kids. The youngest, I believe, was two at the time, uh, three, somewhere in there. So my kids were really young and rambunctious, and I just couldn't have any downtime, really, to process anything. So I grabbed my running shoes and started running, and during that first probably year of running, it's like I would go once during the day, and I would just feel processed, and I is like with my body moving and connecting to the land, I could find me as like everything unlocked, and I could think about stuff, and there were times where I would run until I couldn't run anymore, and <laughs> I have to call my husband and be like, I went too far. I'm not running six miles back. <laughs> you gotta come get me, but it was, it was just beautiful, and I would, I would purposely like get off cement and try to find grass areas and I wouldn't listen to music at times and just to listen to the birds and the rhythm and you know the noises around me and so that was like my first kind of connecting my Mormon experience to like this new experience of going back to you know my people and it was during those runs that I kind of made that decision to reach out to family at home because I put all my callings, all my, you know, this whole Mormon life, I put that first before anything else. And I'd let 
so much time passed without even realizing I was sacrificing family relationships. And so during those runs and just listening to nature and feeling the earth, I made that choice to kind of reconnect and start making better efforts and make trips back. Um, it was very much a part of, you know, just being alive and seeing seeing everything differently. And it was like the whole world was brighter. The earth was brighter. The colors were brighter. It was just me waking up like I'd been asleep. And yeah, there's something to be said for just reconnecting to just being alive, just breathing, just listening to the things around you, seeing nature. And yeah, it was beautiful. That's awesome. I'm thinking about uh, claim uh, like claim on the land being, being raised to believe that, uh, there had always been a prior claim on this land, right. That it was always going to be intended as Zion or, um, and, but then, then you have all the layers on top of that of like, well, who was actually here first and who my, my dad, uh, <clears throat> or at least I heard a story in retrospect, and I, I, I also have a poem in the piece, Hickama, um, where I mentioned that he, he'd made a joke about this land belonged to Mexico once, didn't it? And like, cause he was now the outlier when we moved to Orem and it was not received <laughs> very well, right? It wasn't, it was, uh, and so I guess, connection to the land and Mormonism and how it's kind of framed in my mind is just a weird, a weird battle of claim for me. Yeah, I really relate to that. There's, and that's why I write so much about the Lamanite experiences that in Mormonism, it's all about the land. And not many people like look at that, but Book of Mormon warns group after group, if you're not righteous, you're going to lose this promised land. And when you sing Book of Mormon stories as a child, you know, and you're the only indigenous kid in the room and everybody's singing. And at the very end of the first verse, it says, you know, given this land, if they lived righteously, you know, by my teens, I was understanding my, my ancestors hadn't lived righteously. And so you internalize a lot of that. And so I, you know, all the research I did with trying to understand um, the Mormon perspective and where, you know, where it was born out of and connecting that to a lot of the things that I read in my teens in my, in my teens, I started reading a lot of Native American history and it was really hard to like process. And so I, I stopped, I was like, okay, trail tears, all these wars, it was too much to read about the genocide of, of families. You know, war isn't just adult men <laughs> fighting each other. It is families, it is, it is boys, it is girls, it is babies being affected all these people, elderly people being impacted. And once I kind of woke up and was reconnecting and running all the time to try to process, I started reading about how, you know, how that, those beliefs came to be. And like some of the quotes um, really just brought it back to those experiences, reading in my teens about Trail of Tears and then reading Joseph Smith talked about it being the gathering of Israel and just seeing that, that <laughs> kind of flash of ideas where my people have, you know, this beautiful, unique, amazing history that predates the Book of Mormon timeline. But I didn't know that. I didn't believe that. I didn't see it. And so I'm seeing all these um, traumas through this lens of, my ancestors weren't righteous, and that's why my people were hurt. That's why all these other tribes were hurt, is we lost our promised land because our ancestors weren't righteous. So there is such a deep... 
Oh, she dropped. Okay, well, uh, Abby, check to see if she jumps back in. Yeah, here she comes. Okay. Hmm. So, yeah, I I guess I'll just, was I interrupting or did you guys wait for me to try? No, we waited. We waited. We waited. (laughs) Yeah, we've been waiting. Yeah, yeah. So just that, that going from believing that my people and that tribes lost their promised land due to unrighteous ancestors. And then having that opportunity to wake up and reconnect and learn how far back we like predate all that history and that all this shame just kind of left immediately all that, just that complete shifting in identity in understanding. And so, yeah, it, I really just kind of what Reb said, I resonated with just because it is so much about it is about land. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I think a lot of the healing can come to. Yeah. But even with different beliefs and different ideas, like I'm always trying to find that balance of, making space for people that value, you know, religion and value belief systems and value faith while also like saying, but, (laughs) you know, there's, there's more, more to the story of the land that we live on. There's more to the history of the land that we live on and being able to embrace it and take care of it and try to protect it. Um, I have a lot of hope for like the future as far as not just taking care of the land in, in different belief systems, but kind of opening it up and seeing the belief systems of the people who lived here originally mm-hmm. and embracing just that love for environment and that love for being stewards of, of the land. Thank you. Michael, any, any thoughts on that point about Mormonism in the land? I am. I'm still trying to formulate that. (laughs) That's a big part of what my, my, my project is. I mean, it's, um, you know, I, I, I I was raised Mormon. Um, I left as a teenager, uh, and you know, I, I really thought that was, until I was in my early twenties, I really just kind of tuned it out and tried to tune it out entirely. Um, and it wasn't until I actually moved away from Utah for the first time, you know, I, and as, as I was getting into my twenties and, and was doing a lot more creative writing and, and poetry and things, I, you know, I, I wrote about anything but that, like just wasn't interested in going there. And as soon as I moved away the first time to, to Colorado to do some uh, graduate school, I, that was the, the moment when the floodgates opened. And suddenly I was out of that element and out of that weird um, uh, kind of confrontation that happens between the, the, the dominant culture in Utah and, and the subcultures that exist there. And I was taken away from that tension and I missed that. <laughs> it was <laughs> this, this element of my life and my work that was just suddenly gone. And that's all I wrote about for the next two and a half years really was, was that. And um, some of that dealt with the land. Some of it dealt with, with religious and cultural issues, which of course are intricately tied to the land. Um, but, uh, you know, another aspect of this is I, I worked for Ken Sanders Rare Books for a number of years. And, um, you know, if, if you know anything about Ken's shop, it's very, um, you know, books are important to what he does, but so is um, kind of Americana and um, Mormon ephemera in general and maps and documents and all kinds of, um, you know, the, historical documents of all kinds. And I became incredibly steeped in that. And it's this weird cultural kind of coalescing that takes place in that shop where on any given day, you might have, you know, um, uh, a couple of scholars in there with a polygamous leader with somebody from, um, you know, the Quorum of the 70 with, 
you know, Richard Turley might stop by and Will Bagley might be in there at the same time that he's there. And it, it's just this incredibly weird um, overlap of people that, that would come into that store on a regular basis. And that um, was where my kind of love of this history. And um, that, that's where that really uh, developed. And, um, you know, Ken is an environmentalist at heart. Um, it is, you know, the, the Edward Abbey shrine in the, in the shop is, is um, never going away. So it's uh, that those two things really coalesced in me um, during that experience that, you know, I, no matter how much schooling I do, that's where my real education happened. And, um, you know, um, Mormonism and environmentalism are, are the two kind of, um, the, the, the Janus faces of that shop, basically. <laughs> and so it's, uh, that, that was the moment for me that they kind of clicked and that um, these two things were, were inextricable from one another. Um, but beyond that, I mean, I'm, you know, with, the, with this nuclear project in particular, um, the relationship to the land is so complicated, not only on a, a religious and a colonialist level, but also, when the land, because of your own actions, turns on you, when it can kill you <laughs> um, in a very real and intergenerational way, you know, with, with cancer clusters and other things like that, like that becomes an incredibly complex relationship. And it's one that we are still very much just trying to figure out how to cope with. Um, you know, people talk about this as a as um, a historic event, you know, these tests and, and Dan Winders as history. I, it's not. <laughs> it isn't history. It's very much still occurring, and we're just starting to, to understand um, how this comes to bear on on the grandchildren and great grandchildren of these folks. Yeah. So. Kind of a unifying theme, I think, between your three essays is kind of this idea of tragedy. Um, whether it's the tragedy of like this Stockholm syndrome, like affection, the LDS people have for a government that made us victims of downwinding, uh, nuclear testing or the tragedy of denied and repressed cultural heritage and homeland there, there's certainly, at least when I was reading through, there's just kind of this, this, this sense of the tragic. Um, and I think that, you know, in a, in a larger sense, there's an undeniable, uh, tragedy, uh, to the Mormon experience that there's just kind of tragedy baked in, especially, you know, considering, uh, some of our history of, you know, pioneering out, out West and, you know, burying people along the way. And there's just, there's a lot of unresolved tragic trauma in kind of our, our DNA in a lot of ways. Um, and, uh, so Sarah and Reb, I wanted to ask you guys, uh, because in, in your, both of your essays, there's an embodied quality to the kind of healing that you find, um, whether it's uh, running for Sarah or dancing for Reb. And I, I was wondering if you guys could talk a little bit uh, to this, in, this idea of embodied healing. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm a horrible dancer. I, <laughs> I just, man, my dad has tried to teach me so many, you know, cultural dances and stuff. And it, it's hard for me. It's, it's a lot of work. It's like math. Uh, and but I've always, I think the first time I felt envious of, I mean, I should add too, I really liked square dancing in elementary school at Sarah Park Elementary in Orm. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and then my dad also, when we lived in California, when I was a little kid, he did a Latino festival. And so he brought, it was really cool, actually. Like he brought the whole community together to learn all of these dances. So there were just you know, a lot of white people were involved too, learning these dances and like learning to how they were singers, learning how to sing these traditional songs. Anyways, um, I'm a bad dancer. I covered that, <laughs> um, but I enjoy it. And um, but ASMR is what I touch on in my essay, uh, Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. Uh, and that is, is probably the most phenomenal thing that I can experience because I can't trigger it myself. It's really hard. It's hard to predict when I'm going to feel it, but it's totally everything else melts away and you're in your body and you're feeling this sensation um, uh, that completely removes anxiety. And it just like it, for a time it replaces it. And 
Um, so yeah, that's, that's been my experience, uh, in my body healing from trauma. Um, and when you talked about trauma and, you know, the Mormon experience with trauma, what I think is how abuse begets abuse and, um, and how, uh, until, until you end that cycle. And so a lot of people who've experienced abuse you know, can start once they start going through healing and learning the words to describe what they experienced, they can start spotting the markers of it. Um, and so, yeah, I do feel, I do feel like a responsibility for spotting those markers and trying to end the cycle in my own life and in the lives of people that I love. Um, uh, yeah. So trauma bodies <laughs> i think i covered yeah. my answer. I, I got it sarah for me it was kind of similar to what rev was saying um yeah with just that connection to your body for me it was empowering actually so for you know for so long i would say something or question something but that's the last thing you're really allowed to do, especially, you know, being female, there's, you know, the patriarchal system. I didn't have a whole lot of space to question or push back. And because I, I grew up in this super faithful, you know, family and I fell right in line <laughs> with, with the rest of my family. Um, once, once there was that transition out and reconnecting to myself, I didn't realize how disconnected that people can be in, you know, like how, how disconnected I was from, from myself. And I, I used to joke and I thought it was like this, like superpower or something. I would joke that I could just like flip the switch and just deal with things professionally and not deal with things emotionally. You know, but I didn't realize that that was actually kind of a symptom of, of disconnecting. And so reconnecting to my, to my own experience, to my body while I was running, um, I found really empowering. You say, you know, tragedy. And I say past tragedy, like that was past tragedy that I was writing about. And what I was writing about was the healing and the power that I was able to take back for my own story, for my own family, for my own history, for my people's history. Um, and I found it very empowering to connect to myself, to have healthier, healthier boundaries, to be aware of, you know, emotions surrounding. And I think that's another part where we do connect to, you know, our surroundings, to the earth, to nature, is it can help. At least it helps me, you know, just feel so centered in, in who I am and where I'm at. And there's so, you know, it's just peaceful, but so my, yeah, my experience was definitely more empowering. Like I felt empowered to be myself again. I felt empowered to be honest. Um, yeah. No, I love the way that you end your piece where you're just like running and you're just running full tilt and you, you end up winning the race that you're running. <laughs> it's really like, it's a very energetic way to, to finish the piece. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it surprised me. I was dying. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. But just really embraced that, you know, being where my grandmother had walked and thinking about her and just, yeah feeling all those emotions of being in that space where so many generations had been. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Michael, I've got a, a question for you about yours. Uh, there's a certain energy in your essay that reminds me of a McKay Coppins article in the Atlantic. I don't know if you, uh, you read that this, uh, this kind of this winter or summertime for you. Um, he's, he, ta he, he writes about how Mormons be are became the most American religion. Um, and in it, he writes about how we as a people are so desperate for American assimilation that we're willing to debase ourselves and accept like cultural abuse, like in the form of like the, the Book of Mormon musical, um, and we're, we're willing to accept that as, so long as it means that we have a seat at the table, right? 
Um, and, uh, that you, there's, there's some echoes of that in your, in your piece, um, that, that these people in Southern Utah basically accept their fate as downwinders and only really get upset when it affects their livestock. Um, but then, you know, maybe 20, 20 years later, 10, 20 years later, we reject the MX missile site. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's role in Utah. What was it that changed in our culture from accepting our fate as downwinders to rejecting the MX missile system? Uh, Cause in some I mean, way I, that is its own kind of healing, right? That we, we, yeah, we healed. Um, the simplest answer to that is that um, the, the church as an organization, as an entity took a stand um, in the case of the MX missile system. Um, it was the first time that they had really uh, that, that the upper kind of echelon of church leadership stepped forward and said, no, we're not going to do this. You know, by that point, um, I mean, Ezra Taft Benson had been Secretary of Agriculture. A number of other um, Mormon leaders had been um, in in cabinet positions, in high governmental positions. You know, they had clout, they had influence uh, at at top governmental levels already. Um, you know, even by the, you know, we, we think of kind of Mitt Romney being this pinnacle of like Mormon political influence. No, it, it goes back much farther than that, and. Um, it when they came forward and it wasn't just the mormon church i should i should also really specify that it was a coalition of the of mormon church leadership uh along with um Paiute and ute and uh, you know a number of um no unaffiliated kind of nonprofit protest groups and others that that were involved in that as well um that came forward and just said no but had the church not made that stand mx may have turned out very different. Um, that, that may have gone very differently. Uh, and, you know, the, this, that turn is, is an aspect of this that I'm really interested in, but even more so the kind of cognitive dissonance that takes place, particularly uh, within Mormons in Southern Utah is, is fascinating to me because there's, there's not, there's more gray area now, but from the fifties to kind of the nineties, there's much less of this kind of gray area where, um, you really have these two sides of the fence that are like, no, this needs to stop. This is killing us and killing our children and killing our land. And another side that uh, says, you know, this is our patriotic duty. This is, you know, if, if our church is saying this is our duty to do and in a patriotic manner, we're going to do it. And if sacrifices have to be made, well, ultimately, Mormonism is a millenarian religion. Um, you know, the notion of the afterlife is, uh, is ultimately more important than even the notions of Christian stewardship that are, are woven throughout the scripture. And so a lot of people went with that idea that, okay, we're going to sacrifice some things in this early life, but we'll see each other on the other side. And that's still very much a divide um, in terms of, of protests of all kind, um, not, not just nuclear, but that, that continues to this day. Um, and, and a number of other issues as well. So. Yeah, I, I, your piece was so interesting to me, Michael, because I I remember hearing about this and learning about this, um, and that you know the government uh, kind of in their meetings referred to the number of people that this would affect as being negligible, like in the grand scheme of things that that the this missile testing was more worthwhile than people and, and you know, the, the life that lived there. Um, and so I think, you know, again, just a, giving this story life and, and purpose is, is really important and obviously very interesting in its connection to uh, the Mormon experience and Mormon history. So, um, yeah, I, I appreciated your essay just because of, uh, you know, learning about those things previously and then again, hearing about it and and that this is an issue and it's an ongoing issue. So really, really interesting piece. And I encourage everyone to, um, to read it in Blossom as the Cliff Rose. Um, your two pieces as well, Reb and Sarah. Um, again, I just want to thank you for those because on the flip side of, of your experiences, there are those of us who are trying to reconcile with this experience as well. And right. um, as, you know, current people who are participating in the LDS experience and who have to understand, you know, how we deal with these fraught histories, how do we, um, you know, serve 
uh, or, or kind of understand these things and how do we heal them? Like you said, you know, you've yeah. had healing experiences um, where you're able to uh, perhaps come to your own understanding for that. Um, but then, you know, those who are participating in the LDS experience, what can we do, um, you know, as, as we deal with these layered complexities of, of land and whose land it is and how do we treat the land, but also how do we treat the people who are on this land? Yeah. Um, and that conviviality that needs to occur in order for this to be, um, you know, a, a future of, of togetherness um, and, and one that can exist on so many different levels of, you know, the Mormon experience, but also the environmental experience. So um, again, I just thank you for your voices and, and for sharing. Um, the last question we really have for you guys is, um, you know, here in the summer sessions, we're about enjoying the outdoors and also um, enjoying that, that reconnection to the environment that we have. So, um, you know, kind of in, in finality of this, what practices are you guys adopting um, to have a more embodied and earthly summer um, and hopefully ending um, on a light note as we finish <sighs> up with you? Or an embodied yeah. and earthy winter. Okay. You know, it, we're, we, we don't, we don't discriminate on hemispheres here. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I've contributed uh, no small amount of heaviness here. So I'm happy to go first on this one. Um, it's, man, it has been such a complete, it's just a, a 180 to move down here from the desert. I mean, I'm just absolutely surrounded by just dense kind of jungle forests and you know i'm not far from the beach and it's i've never lived on water i mean i i i lived on the great salt lake but i'm not gonna let's not kid ourselves it's not it's not a it's not that kind of beach um and it's i, I mean i just every time school starts getting stressful or work is getting stressful or something, you know, my wife and I'll just jump in the car and just go down and sit at the ocean. And it is just overwhelmingly calming. It's, it, you know, that is our, that's our therapy. And just being able to do that is, is um, phenomenal. And uh, there's, you know, New Zealand is really good about reserving green spaces and reserving old growth forests and native forests. And so there's lots of that around us too. And that is, um, that, that's, uh, it gives me a sense of hope being in a place that makes that really a, a top priority. Um, all that said, I miss the desert. Um, <laughs> I do miss it. It's uh, there's something um, I miss that unique aspect, particularly of Salt Lake City, where I could go an hour in any given direction and be in a totally different environment. It's it's fostering all kinds of new habits and and new adventures that are incredibly healthy i think but i miss the desert yeah um we <laughs> we're in dallas texas right now and the summer gets pretty intense but as far as like just having fun in nature I've got four kids ages what are they they're seven to 15 right now and uh we definitely like getting everyone outside and so we don't do anything too fancy hiking and <laughs> got plans almost every weekend to do s'mores in the fire pits <laughs> like <laughs> nothing major but kids just love being outside and yeah that was one of the things that I that my husband and I immediately you know what we liked about each other was our love for camping and hiking and just being outdoors and We've definitely passed that on to the kids and um, we spend a lot of time in the swimming pool too. So like, just being outside and <laughs> I'm actively wearing swim trunks. So I love. Yeah. The pool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We live in it during the summer, but yeah, that's all we're really doing. Um, I'm trying to become a plant person this summer. I, <laughs> I've planted uh, a lot of succulents and terrariums, and um, I decided I decided to, to to go with succulents after my sister gifted me an orchid, and 
following the instructions still killed it so quickly. I was pretty <laughs> sad. So I'm like, okay, I need something a little heartier. Um, so I've got my succulents and um, we bought a jalapeno plant that I'm growing in, in a pot and I'm, and that's, that's going to, if I can keep that alive, then I'll start growing on, I'll start moving on to the harder plants. Um, but so far, other than that poor orchid, everything's alive and it's been, it's been about a month. So that's what I'm trying to do this summer. That's good news that everything's still alive. Yeah. I have yeah. a lot of plants too. Cause uh, I like to think of myself as a plant person and uh, I'll tell you what, that some are a lot easier to take care of, but there are some that are just like, they're hell bent on being like, I'm going to be really hard for you to take care of. <laughs> Rabbi, I will admit um, that I, you can't buy fresh jalapenos in New Zealand. They just don't exist. Yeah. It is the thing I miss the most. Oh, really? <laughs> oh my God, not being able to buy jalapenos, is, it's killing me. Oh. <laughs> Looks like you need to start a, a plant. <laughs> yeah. You need yes. to start growing Desperately. <laughs> <laughs> for our listeners please check out the book blossom as the cliff rose mormon legacies in the beckoning wilds from the tory house press it came out a week ago and uh, it is very very good mm-hmm.